spend more time in the outdoors and you'll find that everything in life gets better. Yeah, I, I greatly enjoyed this. is one of my funnest podcasts I've ever been part of. No more dreaming, no more wishing. Wave goodbye. I'm gone fishing. Welcome to the Canadian Fishing Podcast. Previously known as the Made for Memories Podcast. Where we explore the sport and business of fishing in Canada. And the memories made in the great outdoors. Hi, Brad. Hi, Jessica. I hear that our uh, tips from Mr. Adam Gamble were useful to you. Yes. In the past couple of weeks. It's had very exciting results in Sylvan Lake a couple weeks ago. No, two weeks. Was it one weekend ago? Two weekends ago. Doesn't matter. I caught the first fish out of Sylvan Lake in years. It was a perch. That's fine. And caught probably another 15 or so perch same day. It was very busy. It was it was a very fun little fun day. And more importantly, caught the first perch. So Mitchell, uh, I could see the pain in his eyes. He was, he was sad. He I just see it. Twisted the knife. I didn't even have to say anything. He just he knew. Obviously, a superior angler, I guess. Well, you know, it's been kind of fun. I don't know what it is about the last couple of episodes, but we've had quite a few comments. Um, we have had quite a few comments. New, some new listeners. Lots of new listeners, yeah. Um, And uh, even one of your good buddies didn't know you had a podcast. And they did give me some feedback. They think that I should be meaner to you. Yeah, I didn't think that was very nice feedback, was it? Well... Maybe that's all in the name of entertainment. I guess. Well, well, you'll have to be quick on your feet then. Figure it out. But no, we have been very, uh, very surprised by the uh, the growth. And thank you very much for everybody. Would remind everybody once again that it really means a lot to us, Jess and I personally. If you take an extra minute out of your day and actually rate and review the podcast. And share it if you see you would like to share it, but even just rating and reviewing it uh, has a big impact. And we kind of think that's maybe why we're getting extra, extra listens here. So uh, it's been fun. Good job, Jess. Good idea. I was skeptical a long time ago. I was skeptical episode one or two, but it's it's been actually kind of fun. You get to spend more time with me. Yeah, I spend lots of time with you. Just. Well, you spend lots of time parallel to me. In the office next door. Yeah, parallel. Yeah. Um, We have a fun guest today, too. Well, we brought back another fly fisherman. Well, yeah. Yeah, he, he's a fly angler, but he's he's done lots of other stuff, too. He's He's got a lot of interesting life experience. So let's uh, let's bring Josh on and find out a little bit more about his much more exciting life. We're ready. Today we welcome Josh Jelena. Did I get that right? You nailed it. 
Josh is a former professional guide for Plumbers Arctic Lodges. He is now a buyer for the Fishing Hole Canada and spends much of his free time tying flies. And he's a Team Canada fly fishing competitive angler, which he's going to tell us all about. Please welcome Josh. Yay, Josh. <laughs> Thanks for making the time, Josh. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So uh, Josh and I have never met before, and Brad told me that we just had to have you on the podcast because you're, quote, unquote, a good yak. <laughs> well, I like to think so. I've been told <laughs> I can talk a lot, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just got so much stuff going on, too. Like, I the first time I met because we talked on the phone about the first kind of more social uh, relationship-building lunch we had, it was it just kept going. Like there was one thing of interest and another thing of an interest and another thing of interest. So you've had a, you've had a heck of, cause you're not that old either. No, I'm, I'm, tw I'm 29, just about to turn 30. Yeah. So I, I mean, we've got so much to talk about. Um, but I think the thing that I'd like to talk about first is how, like your first, your first job. So your first job was in the restaurant industry. So tell us about that. And then we're, and then and then we'll get into how that transitioned into the more of the fishing side. Well, to be honest, yeah, early in life I wanted to be a chef. I knew I wanted to be a chef. That was something that was like I lived at a lake, so I always had the fishing opportunities presented in front of me. Uh, but for the most part, like being a chef was my life growing up. So as soon as uh, I was a young man, you know, I was looking for my first job. First job was actually McDonald's. Uh, Cineplex, they didn't go overly over very well, I guess you could say, uh, just because I was a bit of a, uh, a delinquent back in the day. Um, but I mean, moving forward, I, I went to school to be a chef uh, throughout high school. So I was still part of the skills program um, that when it was still available. So I was able to become a Red Seal chef very quickly out of high school. Um, and at the time I was working at the fishing hole, the fishing hole was the first job not to fire me. So I, I mean, <laughs> super, super, super appreciative of that. But um, it was right after I had earned my red seal. Uh, I got my red seal at 18 years old. Um, and I basically attacked the culinary industry super, super quickly. Uh, my first job, I mean, was Joey Mayfield. Uh, you know it well, because we had lunch there just the other uh, the month there. But um, the, the culinary industry for me, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot of about my job today even uh, but it, it kind of molded me into the kind of individual that I am today because uh, the one thing about the culinary industry is it is a bit of a toxic industry you got to have a bit of a thick skin to be able to succeed in that industry and is as, as, as kind of nasty as it can be sometimes it, uh, it it has a general upside and unfortunately that upside is not pay so that was when I decided to kind of move on from the kitchen industry. And it took me about seven years to realize that. But uh, that's what drove me back to the fishing hole uh, eventually there. So. You started at the fishing hole in sales. Was that correct? You betcha. I was uh, I lied about my age at 14 years old and uh, I got in the same year that we were legally allowed to start working at 15. Uh, but uh, yeah, I lied about my age at 14 years old. I was a sales staff at the 97th Street location, the old North store, if you still remember that. And then you went from the sales industry and then you, uh, how did the plumbers thing come, come to be? So the plumbers thing, actually, that's a really good story because that kind of segues from both. So I was actually still at Joey Mayfield when, when, um, when I got the job up at plumbers lodges, what had happened was I had, uh, 
again, being a young chef in, in an angry industry, I had fired a guy in blazing fashion and uh, that landed me a nice little stress leave uh, that basically I needed to figure out something because I needed to still make rent that month. So being that I had worked at the fishing hole once before, I ran back to the store and I had asked if there was even a week of work or two weeks of work that I can put in just to help out and just kind of cover off this time that I wasn't, was away from the restaurant. And uh, what ended up happening was they asked me to help out at the boat and sportsman show that year. And yeah. there was a gentleman in the booth with us at the Boat and Sportsman Show. He was a, a savage bait rep. His name was Jeffrey Goudreau uh, out of BC there. And uh, he was the gentleman that after kind of venting to him a bit about all the stresses I've incurred in the, in, in the restaurant, he was the one that told me, man, I got a guy for you. You know, you, you got to meet this guy. You got to meet this guy. Josh, you know, he's such a passionate fisherman. You shouldn't be in the kitchen. He says, you should give that life up entirely and just become a guide. And uh, it was funny because at first, it's a, yeah, he took me over to the booth and I, I got introduced to a couple of guys. I got introduced to Scott Lake Lodge originally and uh, Plumbers Lodges. And uh, the two owners shook their hands, met them briefly. And uh, it was later that week that actually I decided this is the route I'm going to take and this is what I want to do. I, uh, <laughs> I called up, uh, it's funny because I took the interview from both of the lodges, but I didn't know who I was speaking to from each. And when Chuck, the, the, the general manager there of Plumber's Lodges, when he originally called me, he didn't introduce himself. He just basically told me that I had the job and, you know, being Yellowknife for June 27th at this time, I'm like, okay, yeah, no problem, no problem, no problem. I hopped onto Facebook and I thought I had been hired to Scott Lake. So I had, you know, put this giant post up there saying how honored and excited I am for the opportunity to go work at Scott Lake Lodge. And in reality, I had just been hired to plumbers and it wasn't for my buddy actually calling me soon after calling me an idiot, you know, just like, hey, man, you got to get your facts right. So you just got hired to plumbers, not Scott. So and funny enough, it wasn't two or three days later. Uh, oh, sorry. No, it was a day later. I got a call from Scott Lake Lodge and I had to explain to them they were offering me a job, too. And I had to explain to them that I had already had been hired. So even though I put a giant Facebook post out there saying I'd been hired. <laughs> Both are, I assume, very beautiful places. Oh my gosh. The North is probably the most un unsung place, I would say, on earth. Uh, it's just so uninhabited and so barren. It's, it's kind of a desert and so desolate all in its own, but it's one of the last places on earth where you have that much space of just nothing. Um, it, I mean, I don't know how it rivals to the space of, say, the rainforest or some of like the, the, the nature lands in, like, I'd say, northern Russia or anything like that, but I can imagine it compares. Um, there's more water than land out there. There's more animals and you know what to do with the land of the midnight sun. I mean, it, the north is quite literally the most beautiful place in Canada, and a lot of people don't get to take advantage of it or, or even get to see it in their lifetime living it. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate because I feel like anything over the 50th parallels is easily some of the most beautiful places on earth. And, so and, and with my, sorry, not to interrupt, but the vast amount of places I've been around earth, like when you think of Tasmania, Slovakia, and Italy, you'd think that those places would have absolutely trumped Canada for beauty. But when it comes down to it, if I took any one of you guys to the tree river, I think you'd, you'd agree with me. It was probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah. When, when you were hired to plumbers, had you been north of the 60th parallel before? Or... To be honest, I had never even been on a plane before. <laughs> <laughs> the whole experience was very, very shocking to me. Getting, you know, being 18 year old and, and as a new guide, that's got to be one of the scariest things on earth, especially not having any friends or anything to kind of go with or, or, or look forward to seeing. I mean, everybody I was going to meet the moment I got on that plane was brand new. And it did. It kicked me in the butt quite heavily. I was 18 when I first started. Yeah. And it, and it was so remote. 
Oh, insane. In regards to it now, these days, I mean, we got the stuff like the Garmin inReach and we have all sorts of GPS systems and sonar systems that talk to each other and, and we can stay in communication. But, you know, when I first started and I'm not, not to age myself, I'm not a very old guy, but when I first started, you needed a sat phone or anything to communicate like that. There was no, you know, texting from a little device to the lodge. There was no communication. So if you didn't show up past a certain time, the plane just came looking for you. So I, I'd like uh, Blummers is is absolutely one of the more, probably I would say more famous uh, northern lodges in Canada. Uh, but for those that maybe don't know about Plumbers or hadn't haven't heard about Plumbers, give us give us the rundown on the lodge and and the Tree River and 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 your time there. Plumbers Lodges is pretty special. Um, it's been in business now over 50 years. The first lodge formed on a great slave. I, I you can't give you the exact date just because it slips my mind at the moment. But I mean, we're talking years and years and years ago. Uh, the, the East Arm of Great Slave Lake was the first lodge that came up. Um, that was primarily a lake trout lodge. Uh, you obviously had the option for pike and, and, and grayling as well. Uh, but the cool thing about that lodge is because it's located in the Talthili Narrows, um, you have a 20,000 square kilometer lake that empties into about a 4,000 square kilometer bay. So right in front of the lodge, you have an egregious amount of current. And so if you're a jigging enthusiast, especially uh, the that narrow tends to be very deep. And a lot of our, I would say a lot of our fishing days don't really happen much further than 10 plus maybe 10 and under kilometers from the lodge. So right. the, the boat trips are very minimal. Um, it's a big fish days, like lots of numbers um and jigging primarily jigging just because the fish really conjugate in those narrows that they they they, they, uh, uh, they pot up and i've seen on my sonar at any given time up to 100 200 lake trout directly beneath you which is complete opposite of our other option which is great bear lake and great bear uh different from great slaves great bear is a 30,000 square kilometer system um it's much shallower though uh than than what slave is slave tends to have the deeper holes it is the deeper lake a bear still gets over 2,000 feet deep in one, or I think 1,800 feet deep in one section, but uh, primarily it's a much more shallower lake on average. And being that it is so remote, uh, this is the one that looks like a, a kind of like a star at the top of Canada that people don't know too much about. But this is the Mecca, as far as I'm concerned, for lake trout fishing. Um, I've only been, I had seven seasons out there. In my seven seasons as a guide, I landed 38 over 40 and I got nine over 50. Um, wow. And I mean, Woo! I can't think of another lodge or another even just, and that wasn't by any means no Tom Brady numbers. I wasn't by any means some all-star guide for hitting stuff like that. There were guides that were extraordinary, like significantly better than I was um, in, in hitting even more and more consistently. So, and they have guys that have been up there for 20, 30 years, mind you too, right? They know where these things live. Uh, but just in regards to a centralized location where the fish get that big on average, was just absolute, not average, sorry, but like just that big in general is extraordinary. And the, uh, the, the second week of training I had on the lake, um, I had basically just gotten the keys to my own boat. I'm gonna be doing it myself now. I gotta not choose the spots. I'll be following a senior guide, but I, I'd, I'd be given the free reign to do everything myself. And I was learning from two absolute legendary guides. Their names were uh, Paul Reynolds and uh, Harvey Anderson. And uh, we had gone out to uh, a spot called Cat Sadie. It was about a 80 mile, no, nah, maybe not quite that far run. We did about three hours in a boat, four hours in a boat, no problem. 
Um, and it was the second day of the trip. I had the best day of my rookie year. Uh, we landed three 38 pounders uh, in this cookie cut of 38s, the painful 38 pounders. Cause every other fish, you know, you think that one's gonna crack 40, but it was the exact same size as the last fish. So from a guide's perspective, that was really heartbreaking, but it was still the best day I had on the lake in my rookie year was the, the three 38s we had gotten in one day. Uh, but it was back to going home uh, one of the senior guides had mentioned, you know, let's stop here for a quick shore lunch fish. And uh, the, in the five minutes we stopped, we each hit a fish. Two of them were shore lunch fish, perfect size, exactly what we were looking for. Uh, Paul's boat had a much larger fish on, calls me over because he bottomed out his scale, which I couldn't believe. And uh, we, we measured a 70 pound fish in the net that day. We had landed in 12 feet of water. Good we were two golly. pounds shy of the all tackle that had stood for over 10 years at this point. Good golly. <laughs> Yeah. And it was a 54, uh, 54 and a half by 34 and a half inch fish. My, um, for context, I bring my dog to work, Steve, and he is about 60 pounds. So like, we're just going to do, come here. <laughs> yeah. You can hate this very much, but like, let's just do a context here. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, how big. That's a huge fish. It was, it was certainly, a, it's a fish that still gets talked about today. Um, <laughs> the young man that caught it was only 18 years old, uh, which was super exciting for him too. And what's even extra special was his uncle had held the world record at 58 pounds for many years before Lloyd Bull got a 72. So I wonder, I wonder if that's going to ruin fishing for that poor kid. 18 years old. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure it did. It Don't ruined all of us. <laughs> First thing Paul said to him was, looked at the kid and reminded him, you will never see a fish like that again as long as you live. He says, most guides will, you know, dream of a fish like this in a hundred year career. And most guys don't see it. So how long does it take to reel in a, a fish that size? You know what? It's, 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 it's a little disappointing. Uh, the fish was only in 12 feet of water and I can only speculate on how old that thing must've been. Um, it was about a two minute battle. Oh, okay. <laughs> it came right to the boat. It basically turned sideways. It looked like he false hooked the beach ball. If you want me to be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. I, I imagine you have dozens more of those stories and we, we don't have that much time to talk about all those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have, uh, we, because we got more, more ground to cover. Yeah, of course. So I'd like to talk uh, about your transition from plumbers to retail and how did that, how did that come about? Um, so technically it, it just kind of complemented one another. So beforehand, when I was working at the fishing hole, I was, you know, I was the kid that just loved to fish in Alberta. I, I wouldn't call myself anything really significant. I grew up at uh, Lackland, just an hour north of Edmonton here. Um, I, I had fishing opportunities every day I wanted, really, if I wanted to go fishing, dad or grandpa would constantly take me out. So, I mean, no issues there. And yeah, I, I always had fun with it. Didn't think anything of it. Once I became retail, and especially I would say more the culinary side of things, taught me a lot more of the customer service perspective, that it's not really all just about knowing how to catch a fish and knowing what to use for a fish or knowing where to go for that fish, but just like knowing how to talk to people and uh, and be able to deliver that information um, in a professional manner and, and then being able to teach people in the same sense. So uh, when I, you know, 
went back and obviously became a guide, most of my culinary career was aligned with my guiding career. So I kind of got all of that out of the way at the same time. When I came out of that, it, it was COVID was the same year. So, mm. and, and unfortunately that, that summer, a little bit of a sad story, but the guy was completely okay. I wasn't, but uh, my last year of guiding, there was a gentleman that had a stroke in my boat and mm. that he survived, everything's all good. But I, I took a bit of a mental strain from that. And uh, I'm not gonna say I'm, I'm really struggling with it too much anymore, but initially that did hit me pretty heavy. And I told myself I needed to kind of calm down, time to slow down a little bit and then and, and focus on the priorities in life and get a big boy job. And I, uh, yeah, I came back to the fishing hole I had no regrets. Uh, they they took me in, and it's been a job I've never really looked back on. It, it, they treat me so good here, and you know the retail side of things. It's it's heavily educational, um, and from both perspectives, especially as a young man and working on the floor, the amount you learn just from the customers that were coming in and just sharing their stories is is astronomical. There's so many bodies of water I've never heard of, or techniques I've never heard of, and. I'd say a lot of my knowledge stems from the conversations I had from with customers on the floor of, of our shop. Um, but now, you know, you kind of go to the flip side of this, you, you give yourself a seven year, you know, guiding career and, and a competitive career. And now people kind of come to you with those same questions and want to know your opinion on, on those exact same things that I had those questions for originally with. And, you know, it's, it's kind of humbling in a sense, because now I feel like I just give my opinion and it's just an honest opinion. And as long as I stay, you know, true to an honest opinion, I'm giving somebody some really good information. And, and that to me was the biggest transition was now, instead of like being the known expert up at the lodge and being expected to perform. Now it's just how much information, how many people can I impact with the information I learned over the last seven years. And, and that to me, the, the transition has been honestly quite smooth because it's, it's I don't feel like I've really left the, the fishing world. It's just segueing into something new. Something different, a little yeah. bit different. So you're, you're, you're sales floor guy, you're manager at uh, the Calgary shop, uh, Calgary store, sorry. Uh, and uh, now tell us about your role and, and what you do and on a day-to-day -day basis, what your responsibilities are. Um, tell us about what you do now. Yeah, so it's very exciting. Um, I, it's been a life-changing change for me, to be honest. Uh, being an assistant manager down in Calgary, one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. Some of the coolest people I met were down in Calgary, having the board in your backyard, no complaints whatsoever. Uh, but last year, around uh, oh, about a year and a couple months ago, I had received a promotion to purchaser. Uh, so now I'm one of uh, the three purchasers at the Fish and Oil here, alongside uh, Bill Robertson and Chris Colling. And again, it's just another side of the industry I'm getting exposed to and I'm learning so much from, but it's, it's so cool getting to influence kind of what you guys see on the shelves of the stores by what I see kind of pitched to us in our boardroom. Um, getting access and getting able to, uh, the opportunities to really see and, and be exposed to a lot of the market that, you know, I wasn't really exposed to initially and being a lot more familiar with kind of the much bigger picture of things has been a lot of fun. And not to brag, but I genuinely feel like we've got the best team here at the fishing hole. And uh, I, I genuinely feel like I've learned from the best guys in the industry. So um, purchasing, uh, although I sit at a computer now and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm cutting POs, I'm looking at price lists and I'm, I'm trying to find the best equipment to be putting on the fishing hole shelves. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's different. Obviously, I'm not holding fish up for photos anymore every day, but 
it, it's it's a different portion of the industry. It's kept things fresh, and I'm very excited to see where this opportunity leads. So, hmm. very cool. Well, I think the the neat thing about your background is, I assume when you were guiding, you weren't doing a lot on the fly. Is that correct? Was it more spin casting? Um, believe it or not, I was actually specifically hired to be the fly guide. So oh, okay. although you're right, you're 100% right. There was like the, the amount of people coming up to plumbers lodges to fly fish, like 5% of them. Uh, but because there was two primarily fly guides, uh, I tended to see a lot of those guests. Cool. Well, I, that kind of ruins how I was going to introduce this question. However- Oh, it's all good. <laughs> The question it's kind of cool that you have the knowledge of, of both and the, but again, you just went over how just being in sales, you learn so much from other people in terms of what they use and where they fish and especially given that local knowledge. But I would like to know about competitive fly fishing because I had no idea that this was a thing. <laughs> Many people. I didn't either. So no judgment whatsoever. The West is uh, we're really behind on this front. Um, the competitive fly fishing world is a lot larger than people kind of give it credit. Um, it's much larger in the European sector, though, uh, specifically the European sector. The, I wouldn't say it's quite level of Bassmaster, um, but to say it's not next in line, um, I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying that. My first world championship, I saw 280 competitors. Uh, from I believe it was 37 countries. So it was it's it's a pretty extraordinary um, world. It's just not very talked about. In in the West here, you know, I guess let me just start by talking about like what is the fly fishing competitions, and then I'll kind of dabble a little bit further. But the the fly fishing competitions is is more of an efficiency game. So instead of trying to aim for the biggest fish, you're typically aiming for the most fish. So uh, a fly fishing competition is a three hour session. It's on a lake. Uh, you're either going to be uh, what's called lock styling, which is from a boat with a drift sock in constant motion, uh, bank, bank style, which is from a bank on a lake, or you're in a river or a stream, in which case what they'll do is they'll cut out a, a hundred meter section of that river. And that would be referred to your, your beat. And you go and you've got three hours to fish that beat uh, and catch as many fish as possible. So a fish will be a certain amount of points just for catching it. And then every centimeter will hold a point value as well. And it's the competitor at the end of the three hours with the most amount of points that wins the session. Um, similar to golf, it, you're actually aiming for the lowest score. If I got first place in a session, I actually got only one point. If I came in 10th place in that session, I get 10 points. Um, if I didn't catch a fish in that session and I blanked is what that's called, you take as many points as there are competitors in that session. So hypothetically, there's 15. Um, I would take 15 placing points for that for that session. In fly fishing competitions now, you could have most most competitions are five sessions. So you have five different bodies of water. You know, you've gone through the first one, second one, third one, fourth one, fifth session, all three hours long, all different bodies of water, all following the same criteria. And after five sessions, it's the individual with the lowest amount of placing points that wins the whole thing. And it would be the team with the combined total amount of placing points. Oh, sorry, the least amount of combined placing points that would win the competition. So as okay. complicated as it is, and understandably, that's kind of tough to wrap your head around the scoring of it all. Uh, but it just keeps things consistent. You're not going to catch one big fish and run away with it, nor are you going to have one session where you catch 100 fish and run away with it. You have to be consistent through all sessions of fishing. You've got to be top dog on all five bodies of water if you feel you're going to run away with one of these competitions. Um, 
Yeah, and in the West, um, there's leagues, I should say. There's clubs. Uh, in Canada here, the, the clubs are very, very small. Um, the competitions that get held here, I mean, there might be at most maybe a dozen real serious competitions across Canada in a year. In the States, you know, there might be a same thing, about 24, maybe 30 competitions in a year that are actually quite serious. Uh, I know in Czech Republic, um, they're six events deep and we're, what, 15 days into February and they've already had six competitions. So just to give perspective, they're going to hit probably 50 events by the end of the year and they just take it so much more seriously than we do. And that's why you, they tend to be on top of the podium all the time. <laughs> right. Huh. So how big is this, uh, this group in Canada? Like, uh, it's a Canadian fishing podcast. We might as well focus on that. So yeah. how, how, how many, how many, how many competitive fly anglers are there, uh, you know, in Canada? Well, the majority of the anglers are in Alberta here. And I think oh, it, just, okay. it stems from just having the fly fishing opportunities here. Um, yeah. The gentleman that's running the club here in Alberta, his name is Jason Doucette. Uh, you know, he's been doing this league now for just over 10 years. And it's been growing ever since. Our first year that I was a part of, I think there was five members uh, to our league. And it was just kind of a fun, just get together, go out and see who catches the most fish kind of thing. And now I, I believe Jason's list uh, has exceeded over 50 people. And uh, just because of the limitations we have here in Alberta, um, we can only have so many people to a, to an event just because of the legality limitations and everything. But um, I mean, right now we have about six to eight events in a year. Uh, BC has, I would say 30 members. Uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan don't really have much of a presence. Uh, Quebec and Ontario, I'd say maybe another 30 members. And then just a couple trickled throughout. Like we got a couple guys from Northwest Territories, a couple guys from Nova Scotia. So, so competitive fly anglers, maybe hundred ish, hundred. Yeah, hundred ish. Yeah, I'm not gonna okay. lie. It did used to be a lot larger. Um, it's it's something we're trying to grow. Obviously. So but, so uh, so by comparison, the Czech Republic you said has got a huge fall. So how how many how many uh, competitive uh, anglers would a country like Czech Republic have? Quite honestly, you're talking thousands. Yeah, there you go. There's okay, so that and Czech Republic is what's my Google say? How many people? <laughs> I think it's smaller than Alberta, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they certainly have a lot less water than we do, too. Czech Republic is uh, uh, population 10 million people. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, so so we have opportunities to grow in Canada, the competitive fly fishing angle. Oh, certainly. <laughs> a lot of people, I think, get turned away by it because there's not a lot of money to be earned, if any. Uh, I know sure, the huge yeah. thing, and the, like the world, like the world championships, the Commonwealth Games, the Oceanas, all host a fly fishing world or a championship, which many people didn't even know that fly fishing was in the Commonwealth Games. Um, it's something that they were even looking to get into the Olympics eventually, but obviously that, that didn't pan over overly well, but, uh, it's not, I don't think to that extent, a sport, but in the Commonwealth games, the world championship, the Euro championships, uh, those are the biggest ones in the world. And they host, you're talking sometimes hundreds of people, 150, 200 people to a competition and, and, and only five will be selected from any individual country. So if that gives perspective to the amount of presence there from the world, I guess it's, it's pretty cool. 
That's a, it's pretty wild. So you had mentioned when we were trying to book the podcast or started talking about booking the podcast that your competition season starts in April. So tell us about your summer. Where are you going to go? What's Uh, what's your circuit? So my circuit this year is pretty much going to be the Alberta one. Um, I'm sticking to Alberta. I'm going to keep it super casual this year. I'm taking a step back. Uh, just due to some controversies, not going to get too deep into, but uh, Alberta this year, you know, uh, the first two events are being held on the Bow River in April. There's the, 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 the there's going to be a one day event, uh, followed by a two day event with four sessions. Um, and then throughout the year, uh, a lot in the parklands region. Um, we have a lot in north of Edmonton as well. So places like Dahlberg, places like um, Cow, places like Beaver places you know all the rivers like the red deer river will probably be a venue again i can't say too too much or like concrete just because those venues haven't been announced yet uh the only ones that have been announced so far this year are the two bow river venues uh and yeah the two bow river venues which i'm already preparing for since that one tends to kick my butt a bit so (laughs) so how good of a fishery is the bow river because because we probably we have listeners from across the country Mm-hmm. Um, and we did have Keenan Vine on, uh, talking about Bull River fly fishing, uh, I don't know, a few episodes ago, half a dozen episodes ago, episode but 22. from your perspective, if anyone wants to go, go back and listen, episode 22, episode 22. So, uh, just tell us about the Bow River as a, I mean, obviously you would have catered to it a lot when you were assistant manager at uh, the Calgary store. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about the Bow River. How good of a fishery is it? How has it changed over the years, especially since the floods? Um, t- t- talk about the Bow River for a couple minutes. Awesome. Yeah. So the Bow River is near and dear to me, especially after living there for the last you know two years and hitting it three times a week pretty well the whole of the time I was there. Um, it is a very much a changing fishery. I'm not going to claim to have all the experience in the world on the bow, just because I really started dabbling heavy on the bow when I kind of got into the competitive scene with the fly fishing. Um, but the Bow River, you know, talking to the old guys like Barry White and, um, you know, uh, Mike Maley, talking about what it used to be before the floods, the dry fly action on the bow used to be state of the art, universally known. Um, and it was because of the amount of caddis grass that used to come up and grow throughout the summer times, especially through the warmer portions of summer, you'd have the weeds crawl right up to the surface of the, 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 the river there. And you'd see a lot more of that bug life on the surface that gave those anglers an opportunity for dry fly. So I seen a lot of the demographic come in and just mention, you know, the river isn't the fishery it once was, or, you know, it's a dying river, or we're doing nothing to take care of it. And it's just, I think it's exactly what you said. I think it's just a changing river. I think that since the flood has detoured it a few times, and, and um, obviously there's books and literature out there that can speak really in detail with what the, the makeup of the bow is and everything, but since the, the, the Bow River's trail has basically changed so many times over the years with the floods, that grass no longer really appears anymore. So I think that the approach to the bow has changed if you're going to stay as successful as you once were, but the bow in itself really hasn't changed overly too too much outside of like obviously having a new route to, to the, the water is actually physically taking um for me i did i had lots of success on dry fly season there but you really got to make sure that the hatch is on like if the storm flies are coming off you're going to get away with a storm fly on the surface no problem hoppers same thing you're going to have you know a great day with hoppers if you see the grasshoppers coming off uh, but i feel like majority of the feed on the bow now is subsurface 
I feel like even the small fish are chasing minnows, chasing spoons, chasing cranks, chasing stuff like that. Not necessarily hitting those dry flies as aggressively as they once were. Uh, my tricks down there, you know, when you take a look at my notes, especially getting ready for competitions down there, um, nymphing was without question the most effective way to get the fish on the bull. Um, my best day on the bull, I exceeded 100 fish twice. Um, and and the majority of a three hour practice session for me, though, if I was to take numbers, I would be satisfied with anywhere between 17 and 30 fish was was about an average for me in a three hour session. Um, and, and what percentage brown versus rainbow? Honestly, that was honestly always strange to me because that was never something I could really pinpoint. And if you looked at my notes, there was days where I only hit rainbows and there was days that I only hit browns. Uh, there was days that I hit a good mix of everything and they were just willing to play on everything. And I genuinely believe that the behavior of, especially, I feel like Alberta gets so comfortable looking at uh, stocked trout, especially being basically uh, everywhere in Alberta. If you've got a lake with trout in it, it's pretty well stocked in there. And they get kind of used to the behaviors of a stocked trout versus a wild one. The wild trout in the bow, they're going to be a little bit more difficult, I would say, than the average stocky. Uh, but it's just because they're more routine based and they haven't really been exposed to too much synthetic, synthetic, anything. There's no, you're not going to catch a wild fish on a pellet fly, right? It's, it's, it's nothing they'd ever recognize as food. Um, but in the bow specifically, I find they adapt very quickly. And as soon as the hatch is on, they're on the hatch. And even like after the hatch for three weeks, they don't really forget about the hatch. So, you know, when you talk about browns versus rainbows, even versus whitefish, that was kind of such a mixed bag of beans every time you went out. And even the sizes of the fish, that's another thing I can speak for. There was days you go out, I hit 15 fish and they're all hugging that 18 to like 21 inch mark. And then the next day I go out, I hit 60, but I didn't see a single one over 15 inches, right? Using the exact same flies in the exact same spot. So I think it's just the way that the river's made up and just kind of the preferences of the fish as, as conditions change. Cool. Very cool. Um, Jessica, do you have any more questions for Josh before we move on to rapid fire? Because I have so many, but a lot of them are in rapid fire. And um, in the interest of staying on schedule, we might as well get her done. Run right into it. Okay. You have 30 seconds okay. to answer each question. Sometimes there's a little bit of grace period because the answer is so interesting but okay. 30 seconds is the if if you if if you want to play within the rules 30 seconds, 30 seconds. per answer 30 seconds and just puts up her little timer and then you got a bit of a get a bit of a understanding of how much time you got left okay sounds good all right ready Jess? i am almost ready give me a second ready ready, my timer. ready, ready, ready jess i'm not ready <laughs> i'll let you know when i'm ready okay Question number one, what is the cost of getting into fly fishing? The cost of getting into fly fishing is basically pushing yourself to, to I guess, the self-discipline you need to be able to do it. Um, it, it. It takes nothing to get into fly fishing. It takes everything in the world to master it. So to get into fly fishing, I suggest simply pick up a rod, watch a couple of YouTube videos and get to know somebody that might be able to teach you a trick or two and just simply getting into it and learning for yourself. It's the hard knocks way you're going to learn from it. So you, you, you basically got to start anywhere and just get comfortable with it. Follow up question. All right. 
How many dollars does it take to get into fly fishing? Dollars. Okay, that's a entirely a perspective matter. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of dollars. Um, my opinion is spend the money on the fly line. The fly line is the most important part of the whole equation every single time, always. Rod would be next, reel, cheap out on. If you're getting into fly fishing, cheap out on the reel. A good rod and a good line does all the work. That's how you keep it cheap. Go and build something yourself. Combo options are also an option, but they tend to be a little bit on the higher price point. Cool. Good. Great advice. Question, question number two. We kind of went over this. Hmm. I, have <laughs> a, I have a question I wrote down that we can substitute. Okay, you go ahead. Question number two, Jessica. Question number two. Um, how did you get the nickname Jelly? All right. Great question. Um, I can remember the play. It was red 257 slide. I was a quarterback for Ross Shepard back in high school. I was doing a right side bootleg. Um, the defensive end for the opposing team came through. He had 125 pounds on me. He swam through me. He took me off my feet. I lost my shoes. I lost my helmet and I <laughs> busted up my collarbone pretty good. The commentator said I looked like jelly. The following game, jelly was written on the back of my jersey and I've never given, gotten rid of it since. So <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's, that's better. Jelly Jelena. Jelly Jelena. People there don't. There's many people I know that don't know my first name. <laughs> cool. All right. Question number three. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen out on the water while guiding? Oh, that's a loaded question. Holy smokes. 30 seconds. 30 uh, seconds. Craziest thing I've ever seen on the, well, I mean, the 70 pounder, with that that definitely holds the the, the bar pretty high. Craziest thing I've ever seen on the river, water guiding. Oh, man. <laughs> That's a loaded question. I'm sorry. That's going to be a tough one to answer in this amount of time. The 70 pounder. I'm going to say the 70 pounder just to keep it easy on myself. But uh, yeah, seeing a 20-year-old world record nearly broken on my second day of work was pretty cool. It's tough. It's the only one that's coming to my mind in that amount of time. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Question number four, rate your top three species that you are passionate about targeting personally. Oh, top three species. Number one, Arctic char, bar none. They are the greatest fish on earth. Um, they're the most beautiful fish on earth. If you've never seen one in the flesh, you really can't make judgment on them because there's just something else about seeing a male char in full spawn colors in the fall coming fresh out of a river that you've been slugging away for, for years and years and years. So that, that one, number one, for sure. Lake trout, number two, and brown trout, number three. Um, reason being, brown trout get a little bit smaller than lake trout. Lake trout get bigger, and that's the reason they take the two spot. <laughs> <laughs> What's the biggest brown you ever caught? Oh, man, don't tell me that. Uh, my biggest brown ever caught... Um, in Alberta, 26 and a half inch, in a Manitoba, 29 and a half. And that's, I've never wow. cracked 30. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, question number five Your best memory at a fly fishing competition? My best memory at a fly fishing competition was in Roblin, Manitoba. I can tell this one like it was yesterday. We were told uh, there was a winter killed lake in one of the sessions. That was the last session we had to fish. There had been zero fish caught amongst 80 anglers up to this point. 
Uh, me and my partner went into that session. We had zero expectations. We were sitting in second place currently in the whole competition. So we really wanted to catch just one fish because we felt like it had a, an opportunity. Um, I got that fish with less than 30 seconds left in that session after my partner pointed it out. We won the whole competition on that fish. <laughs> cool. Question number six, would you rather spend the day in a boat on the lake or with your feet in the river? Oh my gosh. I guess it depends on what country I'm in. Um, in Canada. In Canada, Canada. I'm going over lake in Canada. Lakes are better in Canada for sure. And uh, the reason why is because the fish get really big in them. <laughs> Question number seven. You are a Red Seal chef by trade. I am. Your clients up north probably experienced some pretty good shore lunches. Tell us your secret in 30 seconds of the perfect shore lunch. The perfect shore lunch is identifying uh, the same thing you would identify as a chef in any restaurant. And it's just trying to get to know the person very specifically. And I feel like being a guide, you actually get that opportunity to get to know someone really, really well. Uh, I'd say the secret ingredient in cooking like grandma is capturing the nostalgia feel. So if I can get to know you really, really well, and I know where you came from, and I know where you're from, and what kind of food you grew up on, I can kind of base a uh, shore lunch based on something that you may have been exposed to a lot of as a young person, and thus in infusing it with nostalgia. And then I hit, uh, you know, those brownie points like, uh, wow, you cook like my grandma used to cook. Well, you, you kind of told me exactly how she cooked. So <laughs> that was my secret. Hitting the nostalgia. If you can hit nostalgia, you could do it. That was a lot more like spy 101 than I expected it to be. I want to go for some shore lunch. I'm kind of hungry all of a sudden. Yeah, I was expecting extra turmeric or something like that. As a... <laughs> well, just as an example, I've guided a guy from Arizona where I couldn't make the fish hot enough, right? I was doing like a togarashi crusted uh, lake trout over a bed of penne. Uh, but I'd be like making a habanero basically sauce out of, out of the hottest things I could find. And the guy absolutely loved me up. He thought it was the greatest shore lunch ever, but I couldn't physically enjoy the shore lunch with him. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, question number eight. Uh, we asked Keenan again on episode 22, this question as well. Uh, what is your number one foolproof tip for catching more fish on the fly? Ooh, more fish on the fly. Um, catching more fish on the fly, stop using an indicator. And that is a very aggressive take on things. But when you're fishing an indicator, you're fishing at a static depth. And wherever you have that indicator set to is the only depth you're fishing those flies at. If you get into the mode of fishing without an indicator, fishing naked line, fishing, you know, without the additives and the extra terminal on the line between you and the fly, you have more direct contact between you and the fly and you're going to feel everything between you and it. You get comfortable with those techniques and you don't miss fish. Cool. Question number nine. <laughs> oh, Breaking getting... the rules, Brad. <laughs> you uh, are a Northern Alberta born and raised. You lived in Calgary for a bit. I found out before the, the podcast, your cousin is <laughs> Marty Jelena. Flames or Oilers? Go. Oh, it's not even a question. Oilers. Oilers every oh. day of the week. Oilers every day of the week. <laughs> Here I thought I liked you, Josh. Jeez. You know Marty was an Oiler before he was a Flame. I did, but he did all of his success. That's true. That's certainly so. true. 
<laughs> the Marty Jelena jersey I have is an Oilers jersey. And that's oh, yes, reason. of course. <laughs> really good question, though. That <laughs> very was important. a very controversial question, Brad. <laughs> and he got it wrong. I didn't know you could get a question wrong on Rapid Fire. But... My, my son, Max, is celebrating when he's listening to this. Is he? Oh, that's oh, good yeah, to hear. That's good to hear. He's a hardcore Oilers fan. Yeah. yeah. All of my customers love that I was an Oilers fan down in Calgary. <laughs> yeah, I'm, sure. I'm sure. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time today to be on our podcast. Before we go, um, can you please just tell our listeners a little bit more about where they could uh, follow you and uh, maybe even learn a little bit more about the fish and hole? Well, I'm I'm born and bred pretty much fish and hole nowadays. So if you want to get in touch with me, you're more than welcome to go through the fish and hole. Um, I I do have an Instagram handle with uh, Jellyman, three L's and two N's. Um, if you want to take a look at just kind of my guiding career and my competitive career as it's occurred, I have slowed down a bit on social media though, just because I do take my job very seriously. And uh, yeah, I want to see a, as much of an impact as I can make. So. Um, you will for sure see me on sale days at the fishing hole, especially here in Edmonton. If you happen to be around, definitely come by and say hi. Uh, I'll be on the sales floors quite regularly. So, Very good. Thank, Thank you, you very much for, for coming me. on, Josh. It was a lot Cheers. of fun. And until next time, listeners, happy fishing.